This past week, my kids went to school, and all of them said, hey, I had trouble sleeping the day before I went to school. And they, for all practical purposes, most of them weren't that excited to go back to school. But um, to, last night, it was hard for me to sleep. I hadn't been here uh, preaching at least for 10 weeks. Um, and so it took me a while to, to get to sleep, but excited to be here the way I figure it. Uh, missed 10 weeks. It's 40-minute sermons, maybe. That's like six and a half hours. You got to endure it. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. It's good to be back. It's good to see your faces. That was the hardest part. Shared a little bit last week. Uh, see some faces I haven't seen in a while uh, this week and some new faces as well, which is a delight. Love to meet you and get to know you, but it's great to be back. That was the toughest part. We all missed you dearly. Um, excited to be back. Excited to open the Word. Excited to preach. A little nervous, a little rusty, but uh, God will do what God will do as we open His Word and... Um, he will make things clear. So excited to open God's word with you this morning. Let me pray as we do that. Father, we're grateful for this morning where we can come and we can gather together freely in this place and give you worship and declare that you are good. Even as we look at maybe even our lives this morning and all the chaos that's going on in our lives and maybe even the world around us and we can still declare that you are good. We can do that primarily because you have sent your son to die in our place that we might have life, that we might have abundant life here and eternal life to give us a hope and give us a future when life under the sun looks so futile, when it looks so meaningless in the monotony of life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us and we can know you truly. We may not be able to know you until heaven fully, but we can know you truly. And so, Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would do a work in our hearts this morning as we're confronted with your word, that we might also be encouraged by your word as you show us more of who you are and what it looks like to live in this fallen, broken world. We love you and we thank you for the hope that you give us in Christ. Amen. You ever seen any time loop movies? You know, there's the few sci-fi movies. Uh, Tom Cruise was in one, and he just kept waking up to the, to the same day, the day after tomorrow, and he kept dying and dying and dying. Uh, there's a few of those lately. There's a number of those that aren't uh, sci-fi movies. I don't know if you remember. Some of you weren't born if you're like 30 and under, but uh, Groundhog Day, anybody? Comedy? Got to be 30 and over. If you've seen everything on Amazon and Netflix, then maybe that's a movie you might go watch. But I'm going to ruin it for you, so maybe not. Groundhog Day, comedy, Bill Murray. Bill Murray's a weatherman, but he keeps waking up on Groundhog Day, February 2nd, over and over and over again. And after a few days of doing that, he's saying, man, this monotonous cycle of waking up on Groundhog Day is old. The cycle that I'm going through, so he begins to figure out what can he find meaning in because he just keeps waking up and it's the same boring day over and over and over. And so he pursues a lot of different things to try to bring meaning to literally his day. He, he pursues excess. He pursues pleasure. He goes to the he goes to the restaurant and he eats as much food as he can and he throws it up. He takes the pot of coffee, the whole pot of coffee, and he drinks it because he's going to wake up in a new day and it's not going to matter. He seduces women. He does, pursues excess and pleasure. And at the end of that, 
It doesn't satisfy. And then he turns to greed and he robs an armed vehicle, an armed car, because it's not going to matter the next day. And he uses the money from the armed car to go buy the car of his dreams and new clothes. And so he pursues greed. And that leaves him empty as well. And then he just gets to a place in the movie of despair. And he drinks himself into oblivion and he keeps waking up. He even takes his life a few times and he keeps waking up on February 2nd over and over again. And then he turns to knowledge. I'm just going to get smarter. I'm just going to get more wisdom. And he turns to things like French poetry. Anybody study French poetry? He becomes an ice sculptor. He learns how to play the piano and yet at the end of that he's not content and he still doesn't find meeting over and over and over again, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Ever feel like your life is one big time loop? The monotony of life, yeah, it's not like the movie where it's a real time loop, but your day just looks monotonous. Every single day looks the same. Kids, you just started school. And you get up in the morning early, you get on the bus, you go to school, you learn, maybe you do an extracurricular activity, you come home, you eat, you go to bed, you do it over again. Mom and dad, your schedule, you're the bus driver, right? You get up, you take a shower, you take the kids to school, you do work, you work for a few hours, you have lunch, you work some more. Some of you, you come home, you do it all over again, mom's. You change diapers all day. You do dishes. I hate dishes. Think about dishes for a minute. Just, just think about it for a minute. Like I, I think about philosophically the deep things of life when I'm doing dishes because it's just meaningless, meaningless. Over and over and you clean the kitchen. You're like, anybody recognize this? Anybody understand how much work I've done here? And it goes in the sink. It's supposed to go in the dishwasher. Dishwasher's clean. I'm gonna put it in the sink. Y'all do it? Clean, put it up. Do the same thing with the clothes and groceries. Over and over and over again, the truth of the matter is our lives are often like Groundhog Day. We do things over and over and over, and we're going, what's the point? Turn with me to the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. You need some guidance. There's a Bible next to you. It's page 553. A Bible next to you. If you got a Bible, which I would highly encourage you to bring, we open it. We look at God's Word. Go to the middle of your Bible. Go to Psalms and click right a couple of times, and you'll be in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes answers these kinds of questions, but it does so from just life under the sun. You know, when we open the Bible, one of the challenges, one of the things that we look for is, hey, where's meaning in the Bible? Because God provides meaning. He provides meaning when we open the Bible in Genesis 1, and it says, God created the heavens and the earth. God made us in his image, and it was good, right? He made work good. He made our lives good, and he knows us. He knows us by name. He's made us and fearfully and in a wonderful way. The Bible informs that, but if you come to the book of Ecclesiastes and you just begin to read it, many of you have, you're going to get pretty depressed if you're looking at it from the vantage point of life from heaven's perspective, life from a biblical worldview, we would say, perspective, because the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't start there. He starts with life 
and you'll see this phrase, under the sun, without God. And he just evaluates the natural world and he evaluates the pursuit of her own wisdom from that perspective. And then in the end, he gets to a place where there's Bible, where there's understanding, where God has revealed himself. But much of the book is the author of Ecclesiastes just looking at life through the lens of life, looking at our toil on this monotonous place, this machine, and just looking at it from that perspective, from that vantage point, not from the vantage point of heaven. And you see this theme, life under the sun, over and over again. The implication is it's just life as we know it. And then he calls that over and over 38 times vanity, vanity. Hevel means breath or vapor. You know, like the two days in the year in Magnolia when it's cold and you breathe out the breath and it's gone. That's the way life is. Aren't you encouraged you came this morning? Much encouragement here for the fall semester in Ecclesiastes. It's gone. So vanity, vanity, it's vapor, and he means a number of different things. It doesn't mean complete meaningless, but it certainly means that life and our pursuits in life, many of them left to themselves, not informed by, the, by God and what he makes it and what he infuses in it, but most of the things of life in and of themselves are fleeting. They are futile or they're incomprehensible when you think about knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And so as we look at some of these themes, we need to understand that as we go into this book. Uh, a number of weeks ago when um, I was talking to my wife, she's in kids ministry, and so when she's in kids ministry, I tell you things. Um, I, we planned out Ecclesiastes before we left, and so we knew we were doing it as a church. A few weeks ago, she's like, now, what are, we teaching? What, are you te- what are we teaching on in the fall? I said, Ecclesiastes. And she says, you know, I hope I learned something new because once I get to the end of chapter one, I just want to go buy a coffin. You got to know my wife. I'm like, I have two objectives now. I had one objective for the church, now I have two to make Ecclesiastes make sense and find meaning. So those are some of the themes. And out of vanity, Solomon, who's the preacher, who's the Quaheleth, that's where we get the word Ecclesiastes, the preacher who gathers the congregation. This is like one long, hard sermon, the book of Ecclesiastes. He says many times, eat, drink, and be merry. He doesn't say for tomorrow we die. The Romans added that, okay? Eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because life is brief. Did you know the Jews, when they were looking at the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and they were deciding, I mean, it was was a small thing, because the Old Testament canon, if you ever study how they put the Scriptures together and decided, it was pretty simple. But the two questions in the Old Testament that the Jews had were Song of Solomon, because it's a little bit too racy, right? With human relationships, with married relationships, it's a little bit too much. And then the other book they questioned a little bit was Ecclesiastes. And we look at Ecclesiastes, if you know it, vanity, vanity, and we say it's too depressing. That's, that must have been why the Jews, when they were putting it again in the Old Testament canon of Scripture, had a problem with it. Actually, from their vantage point, it was too happy. Be merry, eat, drink, have fun. Now listen, in this book, what he's not saying, the author is not saying, even though he had his own pleasure issues, he had his own problem, Solomon, he's not saying be hedonistic. 
He's not saying give in to the flesh and be hedonistic. That's what he's saying. He's saying life's brief. It's a vapor, so enjoy it. It's a great message for many Christians who are so, so serious. I just came off sabbatical, so <laughs> rested. So that's another thing. And we find out as we begin the book, go there with me. I'm gonna, let me read the first 11 verses. Um, we find out more about the author. I've already told you it's Solomon. I didn't intend to do that. But look at the, look at the words of, of Scripture with me. The words of the preacher. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. So he tells us who the author is describing him and his role Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Hevel of hevels. He's adding emphasis. What does a man gain by all his toil? That's work. That's labor. At which he toils. There's the phrase. Remember, under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is the machine. Time just keeps going. People live People die, the earth keeps going. It's still here. The sun, and he's going to look at the natural cycle of the earth, kind of like in sixth grade science class, when you look at origins, you find out a lot of answers about how the earth works. But Johnny, at the end of sixth grade, when he's asking questions about why, you don't get the answers. So this is what Solomon's doing. He's just showing you the natural cycles of the earth and trying to make sense of it. The sun rises, and it goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. Again, the cycle of the sun is observing. The wind blows to the south, and it goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns over and over again. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. Wow, evaporation, right? To the place where the streams flow, that they flow again. So it's just another cycle. All things are full, be encouraged, weariness. A man cannot utter it. He turns away from it because it's too hard to look at. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who will come after. Go get the coffin, right? It's monotonous. There is in life, when you just look at life from a natural place without imputing and looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's a futility to it. There's just cycles to it if you're just evaluating it on its own, and that's what he's doing here. And your point is this. Your first thought in Ecclesiastes is this, if you want to write this down. You've got a bulletin with you on the flip side. There's a place where you can take notes. Here's, if you like, filling in blanks. This is for you. Labor under the sun, meaning without God. Just labor on its own, work on its own, without God, leaves us tired and empty-handed. That's what he's saying. Left to itself, our toil leaves us empty-handed. This is life in the machine. You think about philosophers and poets and people on their deathbed that are atheists that just look at the natural world and understand how it works, but not why it works. Vanity, vanity, that's their message. 
at the end of life. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity without God. And we know the answer. We know why. We know that God in Genesis 1 and 2 created this earth good. We know that he even put Adam and Eve in Eden to work it, to till the ground, and it was good. There was redemptive purpose for work, for toil. And then you get to Genesis 3, and what do you see? After Adam and Eve fall into sin, you see the curses, right? You see the curses, and what does it say? It says, toil. There will be toil. Your work will be hard. Thorns and thistles. This is a broken world now. It's crooked, and it can't be made right by you and me. It can only be made right by God. He can redeem it. But that's what Solomon is looking at. He's looking at the world post-Genesis 3, east of Eden, if you will. And this is his, one of his conclusions, kind of depressing conclusion. Where's the gain? Do you see it in verse 3? What profit is there in working and toil and going through all those cycles of life, dishes and schedules? What's the point? And not only that, verse 4 gets more depressing. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth keeps going. Life doesn't stop for you and says, way to go. You live and you die, and the world keeps going. Mark Twain said this, people will mourn you for one hour, and they will forget you forever. What do you do on 1488 when you see the hearse coming and somebody dies? You pull over, if you're, if you're southern, right? The etiquette is you pull over, and you wait. And if it's a, a short, if it's a smallly attended funeral, you, you maybe wait for 30 seconds, it's a big funeral, maybe a couple minutes, and what do you do? You keep going. And maybe you've been in that place where your loved one has died, and it's hard, and you look around the cars that are driving, and you get to the gravesite, and you see people out working or people in their homes, and you're like, you need to stop. You need to understand this person lived and he died, but the world, what does it do? On its own, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. The world will not give you praise. It will not give stop. It just keeps going. Let me give you a little bit more depressing news. Like done. I'm done with Ecclesiastes already. How many know? How many of you know the names of your grandparents? We'll play a little game here. If you're if you don't know their names, and it's not Mimi and G. Paul, it's not Grandpa, right? Do you know their names? All right. I'm, if you're still in the game, good. How many of you know your great-grandparents' names? Got a few people left, or, or at least we'll share. How many of you know your great-great-great-grandparents' names? Some of you are like, I'm the family historian. I've got the family tree. You want to see it? If you're a grandparent in the room, how are you feeling right now? Like your grandkids, great-grandkids, I ain't going to remember you. That's the way life is on its own, without God, without God infusing meaning and purpose into it. And this is what Solomon is observing in the natural world. You see, work for work's sake is ultimately empty and weary, and you won't be praised or remembered in the natural world. 
We learn this at a young age. I got three kids, 15, 13, and 10. Um, Claire, my middle child, when she was like three, her and William were at grandparents. I think I was working off somewhere. Um, and Melanie took them to Seguin to see the grandparents. And they were in the backyard in, in central Texas. A lot of oak trees, backyard, front yard, multiple massive oak trees in their house. Beautiful place. Um, Spanish moss. Anybody familiar with Spanish moss? If you're a golfer, you're familiar with Spanish moss. There I go. Right? Or if you have it in your yard because it just balls up on your yard and it is a mess to clean up. And so my father-in-law said, hey, we got everybody in the backyard. Everybody's playing. So we're going to have a little service project in the backyard. We're going to pick up the Spanish moth. It's rolled into balls. And so the kids begin to, the, the story goes, the kids begin to pick up this. And they go from the backyard, they finish the backyard, and they're like three and five. And they go to the front yard, and Melanie and her mom walk down the street to a garage sale, because that's what they love to do. And so grandfather, William, Claire, in the front yard, continuing to pick up Spanish moss, working. And I know y'all know, many of you know Claire, she's 13, sweetheart. She was a pistol. She was like three or four. She saw Mimi and mom coming back down the street, hands on hips. They get closer. It's with a frown on her face. She says, all I do is work, work, work. <laughs> Two things there. This is vain. All I'm doing is working. Where's the fun? And you know what? You didn't see me do it. You don't understand how much work that I've done here. That's, that little pithy statement has become a statement in our home that everyone uses. We use it on the kids when they're complaining about working and doing chores. They use it on us. All I do is work, work, work. And this is the way life is. And this is true as we look at this text. Is that it? All I do is the monotonous of work, work, work. But you and I know more, right? We know what the Bible says about work. We know that God redeems work. We can rediscover Eden because of the work of Christ and what he's done. See, the New Testament says about work, whatever you do, whatever you do, picking up Spanish moths, doing the dishes, taking your kids to school, changing diapers, Whatever you do, work at it. As you're working for the Lord and not for men, it has value in his kingdom. Ephesians 2, beautiful text, 1 through 10, that talks about our need of a Savior and God's mercy to send Christ by his grace, not by our works, so that we wouldn't boast, but by faith. In verse 10, do you know verse 10? I know you know verse 8 and 9. Do you know verse 10? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we might walk in them. See, we know that God redeems work by the work that Christ did on a cross for you and for me so that life does have meaning, so that work and toil, that there is gain and there is reward that God will one day give but not here, 
Not in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes anyway. Well, let's keep looking. Let me ask you, though, before we move on about work and about the need for people to see what's going on in your life, it's a normal thing. What is your relationship with work? What kind of relationship do you have with it? Whether that's being at home and a stay-at-home mom, whether that's working outside the home, whether it's chores, kids, what's your relationship with work? Is it all I do is work, work, work? Is there a bitterness there? Maybe you have a terrible job and you hate it. God can still redeem it. Maybe you look at Ecclesiastes 1 and just say, yeah, what's the point? I don't work hard. I'm not going to work hard. See, the Bible says this, under the sun. Or maybe work, the temporal work that God has given you, which is a gift. Maybe you become this workaholic and you see your significance and you see your value in your work. But the truth of this text that it would tell you is this, the temporal will never satisfy. Nobody will notice the way you want them to notice. But God can redeem work. Let's keep looking here. More encouragement to be had in verses 12 through 18. So he leaves the idea of toil and labor and cycles, and he goes to the idea of his own personal, this is Solomon, this is the wisest man on the planet that God gave wisdom. <clears throat> this is the guy who experienced pleasure. He experienced power. He also experienced suffering in ways you and I haven't, likely. He's the guy that was responsible. Go look up his life. 2 Kings chapter 2 through chapter 11 is the biography of Solomon. And you look at like nine chapters, you're like, wow, this is an amazing King of Israel, the God made king. He cared about the temple being built that wasn't built under David, his father. He called the people to repentance and to worship God, all good things. He asked for one thing as a young king, wisdom from God. And God not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him wealth. You think about, you look at his life and you go, wow, nobody's ever had more. He saw that end, but he also ruined the kingdom of Israel. He was the king in Jerusalem before the nation Israel split into two, two, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he's the reason that they split because in the midst of all that wisdom and all that pursuing of God, in the midst of it, not separate, we tend to separate it, what did he do? God told him, do not take foreign wives. Don't seek power because your heart will be turned away from me. First commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And God said, look, if you turn away from me and turn to other false gods, false gods, I will strip the kingdom from you. And you get to chapter 11, that's a bleak text. In 2 Kings chapter 2, and that's what happened. His, these wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines, not just for pleasure. Why did he do it? Pleasure, but also power. These are foreign wives of kings, foreign kings. So he gained money, he gained wealth, he gained lands out of this deal. And it ruined Israel. And it split in two with his son. This guy, the preacher, look at it. I, the preacher, and this we think Ecclesiastes is later in life when he's looking back. 
You know, when he's writing Proverbs to his son about how to seek God's wisdom and not foolishness and not pleasure and not comfort and not power and money. He's, he's, he's writing this at the end of his life, looking back and giving us instruction and warning. And he says this, he turned from the toil that he observed and he turned to himself and his experience and his own wisdom. Not God's wisdom that God gave him, but his own wisdom. Look at it. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I have applied my heart to seek and to search. I think my, I think my eyes got worse in 10 weeks. Like, and search out by wisdom. I don't think he's talking about the godly wisdom here that God gave him, that God granted him. I think he's talking about human wisdom, i.e. education, learning, just observing the natural world. All that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business. Here's how he describes it. Seeking out wisdom, human wisdom. It's an unhappy business that God has given us to the children of man to be busy with. Toil. I have seen everything that is done. Here it is again. Under the sun. Not informed by Bible. Right? And behold, all is vanity. Human wisdom. Vanity. Breath. Fleeting. And striving after wind. You're just chasing your tail. And here he said, look at what he says in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. Genesis 3, it's broken. Human wisdom cannot fix what is broken because of the fall, because of a sinful world. As much as we try and we do, our own thoughts, our own wisdom cannot fix it. And what is lacking cannot be counted. It doesn't add up. It doesn't go together and it doesn't add up. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So not only did he learn, but he applied it. He, he experienced it. But look at this. Not only did he apply to his heart wisdom, but also what? What does it say? Madness. Human wisdom left to itself does not fit. It does not add up. And it drives people nuts. See also our culture. And folly, he was wise, but he was a fool, perceived. This is also striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, confusion. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Still encouraged? <laughs> Life under the sun without God. Vanity of vanities, even human wisdom. There's some great things about going to school, kids. Don't go home and go, hey, I shouldn't be here. There's great things about learning in and of itself, learning how the world works. It's a great pursuit. But if you're looking for human wisdom to give you divine answers and answers to meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life, what Solomon is saying, been there, done that, doesn't work. I want you to think about this. I don't know if you've ever done any projects with wood. Some of you are woodworkers. I'm not really. I grew up on a ranch where my dad built a log house, and I was like five, and so I, I got some woodworking in there, and that was about it. But if you've ever worked with like a two-by-four, and you got a project, and there's only a few left, and you find that the last couple boards, one of them, I've done this, it's warped, and you need it to fit, and you use it anyway. Anybody done that? It's just me. It doesn't work out. Crooked can't be made straight. It doesn't fit. It's verse 15. And then you look at lacking cannot be counted. This is kind of a legal monetary term. Like when you evaluate it, it's lacking, so you can't count it. 
That's the way human wisdom is. It doesn't add up. There's no continuity with it. Look around the world right now. Is there any continuity in thought, between thoughts? Does it work together? Does it fit? We can't even define what a woman is in our culture. Newsflash to me, biology apparently does not determine gender, does not determine who I am. Who I think I am determines. This is madness. That's what Solomon says. It's madness. That's what we live in. We live in a world, praise God for Roe v. Way and being overturned, right? And praise God that there's change there, that is something to rejoice, but people can still get an abortion. They can kill a child an unborn child that is not yet born. And 99% of the time plus, it's because of the inconvenience that a new chi- a child would bring to your life. And yet we will protect unborn animals. We will protect things in this world. It doesn't fit together. If you have a wreck and it's your fault and a woman who is pregnant in this country, and a woman who is pregnant has a child, and that child dies. Manslaughter. Does any of this work together? Human wisdom doesn't fit together. It doesn't add up. I've been gone for a while. I've got to get all this out. All right? It doesn't add up. Justice doesn't add up. In the world that we live in, we should seek justice because God is a God of justice. But if you believe that you can commit an injustice to get justice, and that's okay, it doesn't go together. Solomon's gained a lot of human reason, and he calls it, in the end, at least, madness and folly. And this is what he, we see it later in his life. It's interesting because when, when Solomon writes some Proverbs, go to the book of Proverbs, many of those, especially in the beginning, are his. Chapter 3, verse 7, what does he tell his son? As an older man who's been through the highs and lows of life under the sun, what does he say to his son? He says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear God and turn away from evil. In the Bible, when you see the phrases, and they did what was right in their own eyes, it's always bad. When they do what is right in their own eyes, that goes for you and me too. It's evil. We pursue. Our hearts aren't good. Our eyes aren't good. Our minds aren't good. Our hearts are deceptive. Man, there's much application in all of this as we think about the world we live in. But what do we know? It's not here in Ecclesiastes 1. But what we know about wisdom. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Really, the first few chapters, chapter one, over and over in the New Testament, what do you see about the wise of the world, wisdom of the world, and the fool? You ever, you ever been in a situation where because of your faith in Christ, people think you're backwards crazy, right? You're, you're not smart. You're unintellectual. What does God say to all of that? The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. But 1 Corinthians 1 says this, but for those God has called, those who are saved, those who know Christ, 
Christ is not only the power of God, see also Colossians, which you've been in all summer, but he is the very wisdom of God incarnate. You see, God's word, his son incarnate, as well as this revealed word of God, there is wisdom. There is wisdom from God's perspective as creator in your life and my life. The world laughs at it. But that's where wisdom comes from. And man, I look around this room and I know some really smart people, intellectuals who have God has given the gift of taking knowledge and assimilating knowledge and sharing it with others. And you are a blessing to this church. You're a blessing to your community group. You're a blessing to the preaching of the word here. You're a blessing to people who are hurting, who people are are confused because of human wisdom. Thank you for using the gift that God has given. But the caution here for us is this. Man, if we just use our own wisdom to determine what is true, based especially in the world we live in, on our experiences and on our feelings, we're going to get it wrong. I mean, in the post-Christian secular culture that we live in, we are smitten. We're smitten with the idea of our own experiences and our own thoughts determining what is true for us. Are we not? We're infatuated with our own thoughts, with our own tweets, with our own posts as the truth that come from within. What does Solomon say to his son again? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear God. Turn away from evil. This is a danger in the church too. I know it's out there, but it's a danger for us in the church because it's the air we breathe, isn't it? To assume that our experiences and our own feelings about something determine our own thoughts and what we believe is true. That's a dangerous place for a Christian to be. And guess what? We can all get there to justify things in our life, to look at others and go, man, and and realize this. I'm not talking anything about being compassionate. Jesus was compassionate with people who didn't have the truth, and yet he called the truth out in their lives. Did he not? Because he loved them and he cared for them. Listen, if we're going to let our feelings and our emotions drive us, and we're going to come up with our own human wisdom out of that, we're in a rough spot. And we live in a world that this kind of thought drives the world that we live in. If I feel something, if I think something, I've got some wise thoughts, and my thoughts are better than God's thoughts. My thoughts are better than God's thoughts. If there's a question, and I look at Scripture as a Christian, and my feelings and my thoughts, and the wisdom of the world, and my own wisdom, and my own brain, I'm going to pick what I think over the Bible. You can see that in small ways, maybe in your own life, and the temptation of that. We need each other to help each other. You can see that in denominations. I looked this week, and... The United Methodist Church down the street in the Woodlands, praise God, voted 96% to get out of UMC. Charles Wesley long ago would have rolled over in his grave. I don't mean this rude. Because the Methodist Church, the UMC, as a whole, theologically, has bought in 
to the wisdom of the world, specifically as it relates to sexuality, sexuality, as it relates to what the Bible is in relation to culture. And praise God for churches that say that's enough. We're going we're gonna to believe the scriptures. We're going to live the scriptures out. Praise God for that. So my question for you this morning is, is this. Are you like Psalm 1? Are you like the tree firmly planted near the stream of water that when the waves and winds come, that you're firm because you know the word and you believe the word even when it's hard, even when it doesn't fully make sense to you, even when other people say, well, here's my experience. Are you willing to stand there and stay there on the other side of Psalm 1? Are you like the chaff that just blows in the wind? Human wisdom cannot make straight what is crooked. Only God can. Amen? You definitely want the coffin at this point. Where's the hope? Where's the hope in this book, pastor? <laughs> is there any? There's none in chapter 1. Okay? It's not there, specifically. Turn with me to the end of the book. I want to show you something. And this is the lens in which we're looking through this book, which is a sermon, a long sermon. And Solomon comes to the end of it. And he gives us an answer. Look at chapter 12. So your second thought there is this. Not only is labor under the sun leaves us tired and empty-handed. The second thought is learning under the sun without God leaves us confused and frustrated. We need his wisdom from his word. Ecclesiastes 12, at the very end of the book, this is where we're going to come back to often. He gives the answer. If life under the sun is meaningless, where's meaning? Where's satisfaction? Where's life? Look at chapter 12. Look at verse 8 and following. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught his people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs, you have it in your Bible, with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight. Where are the words of delight? You looking for them? And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Do you see that word? Goad is basically a, a tool that farmers or ranchers would use with their livestock. And they would, if, if, if the sheep was getting out of line, they would hit the sheep on the side, nudge it on the side with a goad to get it to go in the right direction. Grew up on a ranch when I was a kid and we had cattle prods and they had some electricity to them. And that's what we did with cattle. Sorry. So we did with cattle. If they're out of light, we're trying to get them back in. We did it to each other too, brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Just pricked each other. That's what it's meant to do. It's just to shock you. It's meant to expose you going in the wrong direction to correct, to go to the right direction. That's what a goad did for animals. The words of the wise, this is this book. That's the way it's going to feel sometimes. Are like nails firmly fixed. And collected sayings that are given by the one shepherd. There's only a couple times one shepherd or shepherd is used 
in the scriptures. There's two in the Old Testament, both in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37. And both times it's referring to God and specifically it's referring to Messiah, the one who would come and make the crooked straight, who would settle the accounts. And so when you come to John chapter 10 in the New Testament and you see Jesus saying, I am the one good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. You know how people responded to that? Do you remember? Some worshiped, some wondered, and many people said, that's a claim to deity. Stone him, kill him. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Solomon points to the good shepherd. He points to a better king. A better king who would redeem creation from its curse, from this toil, from labor, this forgottenness that we feel in the machine. The shepherd gives it meaning, and that's your thought. The shepherd, Jesus, infuses life under the sun with purpose and meaning and satisfaction in ways that no pursuits that you ever, temporal pursuits, ever will. Not work, not pleasure, not intellectualism, not comfort, not money, not even religion. Only the shepherd can care for his sheep. And he knows them by name. Generation should come, a generation should go, the earth continues. No, this shepherd knows you by name and loves you. How will you respond? That's the question. How will you respond to the wisdom of Solomon, the guy that's lived it all? The guys that's effectively, if we want to say it this way, come back from Mars and said, there's no life here, but there is life with the shepherd. Will we submit, and this is, look at the rest of it here. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. If you know the shepherd, you follow him, you submit to him, you submit your life to him, you trust and you obey. Why? Because there's judgment. Judgment's coming. That's the text. Solomon lived much of his life before he learned this lesson, if you go read the biography. He lived much of his life before he learned these hard lessons that life under the sun had to teach him. He went through a lot of pain. He went through a lot of trouble to get to this place. How about you? How much life under the sun do you have to live or did you have to live before you got to the place that you said, you know what? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All my temporal pursuits, my work, my wealth, my success, my name, my power, my comfort, just doesn't do it. Have you gotten there yet? You see, there's a shepherd that waits for you, that calls you to himself, that you might know him and that you might know meaning and purpose in life. Do you know him? Well, I need to close the loop on the time loop, no pun intended. What happened in Groundhog Day? What happened with Bill Murray? Did he just keep perpetually living out February 2nd, Groundhog Day? End of the movie, 
September or February 2nd, he finds love. A lady named Rita. He said, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow if I'm going to wake up and it's still February 2nd. But I know that I'm content and I'm in love right now. So it becomes this romantic comedy. And he wakes up the next morning, February 3rd. And that's sweet. And that's pithy. Sorry, I am a romantic. I love my wife, okay? It's sweet, right? But do you ever watch movies like that where there's not a re- really a redemptive end to it and the problem still looks massive? The monotony of life? I'm like, you've only known this girl for a day or two. That sounds terrible. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be work. But movies that have a redemptive ending, like most Mel Gibson movies, Braveheart, Gladiator, Patriot, there's redemption there. Somebody sacrifices, somebody gives up themselves or something for the other. There's a redemptive story and you leave going, the problem's solved. Here's the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth about meaning, the truth about purpose, and a life really worth living. The Son of God, who was the very power and wisdom of God, became a man. And he died on a cross for your crookedness and mine. And he made a straight path to the Father. And there was nothing lacking in his sacrifice. He was counted accursed for you. The ledger was made right. It was enough. His work and labor on a cross for you through great pain and toil gives you eternal life. It gives you gain and abundant life here today. He infuses your labor and he infuses your work with meaning. And not only that, he remembers you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He loves you. And he cares for you. Your takeaway today is this. Life in the Son, the Son of God. Life in the Son gives meaning to life under the Son. It gives meaning to your work and your legacy. It gives meaning to your learning.